at least two things come to mind when I read the passage before us today. One is uh, the married country duo powerhouse Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. So when I read this passage, I think of those two. And I do that because years ago I worked on one of their videos, a duet, uh, Just to Hear You Say That You Love Me, if you remember that song. And I was working on the video, and I'm sitting in this house around the fireplace, and it's me and Faith Hill and Tim McGraw, and I'm reading the passage that we're going to look at today. So that is a very vivid memory of mine. And part of the filming took place at Harrison Ford's brother's house. So we're in Napa Valley, this wonderful, beautiful video that we shot outside through all the vineyards and everything. And then they scrapped the whole thing and they went with like a little black and white studio video. So a little bummed I never got to see that. But that's what comes to mind when I first read this passage because I was studying First Peter then and I read this passage and I think of Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. Second thing that comes to mind when I read this passage is that how funny it is that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, the Apostle Paul says this. The Apostle Peter says this about the Apostle Paul. He says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I find what Peter says about Paul's writings being very hard to understand a little amusing because of what Martin Luther says about Peter's writings. In his commentary on the passage before us today, Martin Luther said this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So Peter says that sometimes Paul writes things that are hard to understand, but then Peter turns around and does the same thing in the passage before us today. He writes something very hard to understand. And what Peter says in these verses has not only stumped Martin Luther, but every Bible reader since. So I think Luther is correct. The the passage is a knotted mess for interpreters. What in the world does it mean? And to be sure, it is a wonderful text. The gospel goes on full display in these verses. So this is a glorious, wonderful, gospel-dense text. And I plan on showing you what a glorious, wonderful, gospel-dense text it is. But it is also very obscure. It's hard to know exactly what Peter is saying in these verses. In fact, to echo Martin Luther, I say that I do not know for certain what Peter means. But I have an opinion. And I think I'm right. So in light of these comments, you can imagine that there are a myriad of interpretations. In fact, I read somewhere that there are 18 interpretations on this passage. There's a myriad of opinions as to what Peter is saying in these verses. And John Calvin said this in his commentary on 1 Peter, that the obscurity of this passage has produced, as usual, various explanations. That is an understatement. So what I plan on doing is just telling you how I understand the passage. And I will echo Martin Luther again, because after giving his opinion on this passage in his commentary, Martin Luther said this, 
That is the best rendering, as I think, of those words of St. Peter. Still, I will not too strenuously insist upon it. So today, I will give you my take on the passage, but I, too, will not strenuously insist upon it, even though I think my interpretation is right, even though I think my understanding is the best rendering. Frankly, I think I am right. And if you want to dig down deep into the cavern of this passage and do some biblical spelunking and wrestle with all of the issues and questions in this passage, then go for it because there are many study Bibles out there and commentaries and journal articles for you to read. I've read a lot and I'm sticking with Luther on this one. I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. However... I must tell you that I really do think my interpretation is right. I think I cracked the code. How's that for humility? I suppose we should look at the verses at hand because some of you are probably wanting to know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of you tuned me out a few minutes ago and already started reading the verses because you want to know what is so hard about this passage that even the famous Martin Luther did not know for certain just what Peter meant. And what Peter is getting at in this passage is this. God keeps his promises and his people. God is faithful to his promises. God keeps covenant because he is the covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises and he keeps his people. And he sustains them and strengthens them through every trial and suffering in this world. And that's exactly what we'll see in our passage today. It's exactly what we need to hear today since our world is persecuting Christians even more. So Peter will use a very obscure passage to remind us just how faithful our God is. And I think that's exactly what we need to hear today. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read all of the verses, verses 18 through 22, so that you can get your feet wet. And hear the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As we saw last week in verse 18, Jesus died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God because we're sinners, we're born sinners, we're born separated from God. He died a brutal, bloody death in which he took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from the dead. He came back from the dead. That's what Peter means when he says in verse 18 that he was made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says in verses 19 through 20 that it was in the Spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And this is the part of Peter's letter that the apostle Paul might have said that Peter wrote things that are hard to understand. So what in the world do these verses mean? What does it mean that Jesus, in the Spirit, went and proclaimed or preached to spirits that were in prison in Noah's day? And why would Jesus do this? Well, let's look at the three most common ways that people interpret this passage. We're not going to look at all 18. We'll look at the top three. And then I will tell you what I think Peter is saying. And again, remember, I think I'm right here, okay? I just want to prep you for that. Who are these spirits that Peter speaks of, and why in the world are they in prison? Interpretation number one, the spirits are unsaved people in Noah's day. The first interpretation argues that the spirits that Peter mentions here in verse 19 were unsaved human spirits in Noah's time. Remember, we are made up of two parts, the material and the immaterial, the body and the spirit. So they're talking about people here. So what Peter is saying, according to interpretation number one, is that Jesus preached or proclaimed the gospel in Noah's day through Noah to unbelievers. To unbelievers who ridiculed Noah while he built the ark. These people did not believe Noah's message, his call to repentance, so they are now spirits in prison, meaning they are now in a place or a prison of judgment awaiting the final judgment. That's interpretation number one. Interpretation number two, the spirits are fallen angels. The second interpretation argues that these spirits are fallen angels that rebelled and were thrown into hell or prison to await the final judgment. Peter actually speaks of this in 2 Peter 2.4. So according to this interpretation, in between his death and resurrection, Jesus went and proclaimed his victory over sin and death and the devil and demons to these fallen angels who were locked in prison. That's interpretation number two. Interpretation number three, the spirits are unsaved people in hell. The third interpretation argues that Jesus, in between his death and resurrection, preached the gospel to people in hell in order to offer them a second chance. Now, I will comment on this interpretation and say that I believe it is false because the Bible nowhere teaches that there is a second chance to receive Jesus after death. So I think that one for sure is wrong. So those are the three major ways that people interpret these verses. And now let me share with you the correct way. I mean, what I think Peter is saying here. And I haven't found anyone else who believes this, so be warned, okay? If you quote me, be warned. Here's how I interpret the passage, and I'll then explain how I came to this conclusion. Peter is saying that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, went and proclaimed the gospel to Noah and his family while Noah was building the ark. Okay, let me repeat that. Peter is saying here that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, went and proclaimed the gospel, gospel promises to Noah and his family while Noah was building the ark and while Noah was calling the world to repentance. And now here's the million dollar question. Why would Jesus need to proclaim the gospel? Why would Jesus need to proclaim gospel promises to Noah and his seven family members? 
Why would Jesus need to preach to Noah? Here's the answer. Because Noah and his family were the only believers on the planet. There were only eight Christians on the planet. And the entire human race was against Noah and what his family believed. Don't you think they needed some extra encouragement? Don't you think they needed some extra rehearsing of the gospel, hearing God's promises? For 120 years while the ark was being built and they were calling the world to repentance before God's judgment came and they were being ridiculed by the entire human race, don't you think they needed some gospel refreshment, that they needed some gospel promises proclaimed to them to say, keep going, don't give up, God is faithful. Don't you think they needed that? It was eight people versus the entire world. Eight believers, eight Christians, eight disciples versus the entire human race. There were only eight Christians on the planet and everyone else was an unbeliever that did not want to hear the gospel that Noah preached. So eight people undergo severe persecutions at the hands of the entire world. The entire human race was against Noah and his family. Wouldn't you need Jesus to come proclaim some good news to you in that situation? Wouldn't you need some gospel refreshment for your weary, exhausted heart? And isn't that exactly what Peter's audience was going through? It's these little churches that Peter is writing to versus the Roman government that hates Christians. It's these little churches versus Nero, the crazed and deranged Roman emperor who burned Christians alive so that he could light up his garden at night. That's precisely Why Peter brings up Noah to these suffering Christians to say, let me give you an example of someone who endured severe persecution for 120 years and there were only eight people in the entire world hated him. That's why he brings Noah up at this point in his letter. To give encouragement to these suffering Christians and to remind them that even though they are in the same boat as Noah, pun intended, that Jesus would sustain them by his grace, that Jesus would keep his promises. Even though they're in the same boat as Noah and his family, Jesus would keep them. Jesus would preserve them through it all. And isn't that what we need to hear today as the world comes in and is persecuting Christians, not wanting to believe what we believe as the world hates our God, hates Jesus, hates the gospel, hates the Bible. Isn't this what we desperately need to hear today as we suffer persecution, that our God is faithful to his promise and that he will preserve us through it all? Now let me explain how I arrived at this interpretation. I believe the spirits that Jesus preached to were the spirits or the hearts of Noah and his family. They needed some gospel recalibration in their spirits or their hearts. Why? Because for 120 years Noah preached and built the ark according to Genesis 6.3 and after 120 years of preaching 
there were no converts. After 120 years worth of sermons, there were no new church members. Listen, Noah would not be hired by a church today. Imagine Noah interviewing for a pastoral position. The search committee says, how many people were in your previous congregation, Noah? And Noah says, eight members. I was one of the eight. And the search committee says, and how long did you preach there? Noah says, 120 years. We never grew. Only eight church members after 120 years. Listen, no one would hire Noah today with a track record like that. So for 120 years, Noah preached and called the world to repentance, and no one responded. How exhausting, how depressing, how discouraging. I know for a fact that he needed gospel encouragement. I'm sure he was heckled every day as he built that ark and called people to repentance. And I'm sure there were days he wanted to quit. And I'm sure there were days he thought he lost his marbles. And I'm sure there were days when even the physical labor involved in building the ark was wearing him out. But do you know what kept Noah and his family going? It was Jesus. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, came and proclaimed gospel promises to them in order to sustain them. Now, how Jesus proclaimed to them through the Spirit, I don't know. I have no idea. But we do know that God talked to Noah. But I suspect it's how he speaks to our exhausted hearts, our weary spirits today. It's through his promises. God speaks to his people through the promises in his word. And I'm sure Jesus spoke promises to Noah too. R.C. Sproul says this, We exist as the people of God because he has made and kept promises to his people. We can be a part of the family of God only because our God makes and keeps covenants. God never breaks or changes his promises. They are everlasting promises to which God committed himself forever. The hardest thing in the world for the Christian is to live by faith rather than by sight. Living faith involves trusting the promises of God. Throughout history, God has demonstrated that he is supremely trustworthy. That's why, in one sense, nothing could be more foolish than not to trust in the promises of God. When God makes a covenant with his people, he can punish them for breaking his covenant, but he never abandons the covenant promises that he makes. Peter brings up Noah in this passage to remind his readers who were suffering that what was true for Noah was true for them. God keeps his promises and his people. It's what Noah needed to hear as he suffered. It's what Peter's audience needed to hear as they suffered. It's what we need to hear as we suffer for our faith today. God is faithful to his promises. He will never break his promises. He never has. He keeps covenant because he is the covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises And he keeps his people and sustains them and strengthens them through every trial and suffering in this world. In fact, 
Peter actually tells us in verse 19 that Jesus kept and sustained Noah and his family. Look at verse 19. Peter will tell us that Jesus kept and sustained Noah and his family. Verse 19, in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There it is. Do you see it? Do you see how Peter told us that Jesus sustained Noah's family? It's right there. It's the word prison. Now, let me explain. Like many English words, this word in Greek can have several meanings. It's translated as prison here, but it's also translated as to watch over, to guard, to protect in other places. And here are a few examples of when it's translated as to watch or to keep and not translated as prison. And if you don't look at the screens, you can probably fill in the blank on Luke 2.8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping... Watch. I thought y'all could do better than that. The first service did. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Same Greek word as prison here. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Same Greek word as prison here. So when translated this way, it has the idea of watching over something, guarding something, protecting something, preserving something. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was doing with Noah and his family as they suffered persecution? As Jesus proclaimed and preached gospel promises to Noah and his family, they were being protected, they were being guarded, they were being preserved. They were being strengthened by God's grace. In fact, Peter will use this same word that gets translated as prison here. He will use the same word in 2 Peter chapter 2 to describe how God preserved Noah. He calls him a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter chapter 2, and that's actually the same word that he uses here to say that Jesus preached or proclaimed. But listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The word preserved is the same Greek word. In 2 Peter 2, 5, it gets translated as preserved, but in 1 Peter 3, 19, English translations translate it as prison. I think Peter is telling us that God preserved Noah and his family through the preaching of Jesus in the Spirit. So I think 1 Peter 3, 19 should be translated this way. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits being preserved, the spirits being protected, the spirits being kept. So in both of his letters, Peter tells us that God preserved Noah, kept Noah, guarded Noah, protected Noah. Two times in his letter, Peter is telling us that God sustained and preserved and protected Noah and his family. In my humble opinion, Jesus did not preach to the spirits of fallen angels or people in hell or unbelievers in Noah's day. Jesus instead proclaimed gospel promises to the people who needed them the most, Noah and his family. Jesus proclaimed gospel promises to eight people who were suffering persecution at the hands of the entire world. And that's why Peter brings up Noah to tell his readers, 
God will get you through what you're going through, the suffering and the persecution, because look how he protected and preserved Noah and his family when the entire world hated their guts. That's why Peter brings up Noah. But you may say, hey, pastor, read the rest of the verses. It says that these spirits formerly did not obey. What do you do with that? It sounds like you're watering down the text. Well, fair enough. Let's do that. Let's look at it. Look at verses 19 through 20. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I think the phrase there, because they formerly did not obey, is a parenthetical note to be put in parentheses describing Noah and his family before Yahweh the sovereign Lord appeared to them. So it could be worded this way. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits being preserved, the spirits being protected, the spirits being kept, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, that Jesus was preaching when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So Peter is telling us that at one time, Noah and his family disobeyed. They were not born again. They were born sinners. They were a part of the wicked human race that God wanted to wipe out in Genesis chapter 6. They formerly did not obey the Lord. Then God granted grace to Noah and his family. God declared Noah righteous. We saw that in last week's sermon on Easter that God came and declared Noah righteous. He was justified, blameless. And you know how the story goes. Noah and his family, the only eight Christians of the human race in his day, they were brought safely through the waters of judgment through the flood. But why does Peter even add this parenthetical note about Noah and his family not obeying in the past? Why does Peter even mention the fact that Noah and his family did not obey in the past? Why does he even bring it up? I think the reason why Peter mentions that Noah and his family formerly did not obey is because this is exactly how Peter has already described the believers that he is writing to. 1 Peter 1.4, he says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter's saying, you used to live this way. You used to not obey God, so don't give in to those desires anymore. Then 1 Peter 1.18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You inherited these feudal ways of rebellion. You formerly did not obey. Don't go back to that. And then in 1 Peter 2.10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter has a habit of pointing out how his audience used to be unbelievers, how they used, how they used to not obey God. And he does that to remind them now that they are in union with Christ. This is what you were in your past. This is who you are now. And he does that with Noah's family here. Peter's audience and Noah and company formerly were not believers. They lived in rebellion against God, and then God was merciful to them. God called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just as God saved Noah and his family, he too would sustain the churches that were reading this letter. Peter's throwback to Noah and his family is just another gospel reminder that God keeps his promises and his people. 
God is faithful to his promises. He never has and never will break his promises. He keeps covenant because he is the covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises and he keeps his people and sustains them and strengthens them through every trial and every suffering and every bit of persecution that they experience in this world. And Jesus sustained Noah and his family through 120 years of ridicule and persecution and suffering. And he also preserved them through the flood, which Peter then says relates to baptism. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So how in the world does baptism correspond to Noah and his ark? And what in the world does Peter mean when he says that baptism saves? Well, for starters, baptism reminds us, just like with Noah, that God's promises are true. Baptism reminds us that God will keep his promises. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Dan Doriani says this, Whatever the differences between Noah's clan and the family of Christ, in each case, God's people cling to his covenant promises by faith, and the Lord rescues his flock. Yet Peter is clear that neither water nor baptism, per se, can save. The act itself does not save. What saves is the appeal to God for a good conscience. What saves, to paraphrase, is the proper awareness of God that leads someone to seek and find peace with him. This occurs, however, not on the basis of the interest or effort of the person in question, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism does not save us. Having water come in contact with our body does not wash us or cleanse us of sin. It's our crying out to Jesus to be saved is what saves us. So what saves us is the perfect life of obedience to God's law by Jesus. His taking the curse of the law upon himself on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. What saves us is being in union with Jesus. What saves us is trusting in Jesus. What saves us is when we cry out for mercy. What saves us is God being so merciful to us. It's the resurrection of Jesus that saves, which is what Peter already told us at the very beginning of the letter in 1 Peter 1.3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So baptism serves as a sign of how our faith has united us to Jesus, to his life, his death, and his resurrection. So baptism is a sign and a seal. It's a seal of God's promises to us, like a king would send out, write a letter and have it folded and put the drop of wax on there and he would put his ring into it, leaving the symbol saying, this comes from the king. Baptism is a seal to let us know that the promises that came from God are true and we can trust him because we can see the seal. He has sealed it upon our hearts. These words are true and we can cling to them and believe them. It's a seal of his promises. 
But it's also a sign, an outer sign, a picture of our new status as adopted sons and daughters. Baptism is an outer sign that points to Jesus. And that's the point. Jesus is the point of baptism. The point of baptism is not us. The point of baptism is not our commitment to God. Even though we like to publicly say that at baptisms, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the point of baptism. The point of baptism is not our commitment to God, our radical devotion to Jesus, because you've heard me say it before, our commitment to God stinks. If baptism were about about our commitment to God, what happens after baptism? We live a life of sin. We hit our little sister in the car on the way home. We get in a fight with our spouse on the way home. We sometimes don't even make it out of the church before we've sinned after baptism. We don't make it very far from the baptismal waters before we blow it because we sin all the time. So much for our radical devotion and commitment to Jesus. Baptism is about God's commitment to us. Baptism is about how God is faithful to his promises. It's an outer sign for our benefit, giving us greater assurance when we do blow it and giving us hope when our commitment stinks. A hope that God keeps covenant when we don't. John Calvin said that baptism is an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his good will toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. Baptism is an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his good will toward us. And why does he do that? In order to sustain the weakness of our faith. Our faith is often weak. Amen? How many of us today stressed, tossed and turned? How many of us had our stomach in a knot like this passage before us today? A knot all week long because our faith was weak, because we didn't trust Jesus. We need reassurance. We need grace all the time. We need to be sustained. And baptism and the Lord's Supper, baptism serves that purpose in reminding us that we are in union with Christ. We need to be reassured. We need to be sustained. Martin Luther has some great advice to share with us on this. He said that baptism is the daily garment which the Christian is to wear all the time. You ever think about that? Your baptism is a garment that you need to put on every single day to remind you that you are in union with Christ. Luther also said, when you wash your face, remember your baptism. What he means is that every time you wash your face, every time you wash your hands, remember your baptism. Remembering your baptism when you watch someone else get baptized or every time you wash your face or hands or take a shower, it will center your thoughts on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It will remind you of God's promises. When you rehearse the gospel by remembering your baptism, you are reminding yourself that you have been united with Christ in a death like his. When you recall your baptism, you have another opportunity to be reminded that you have been born again to walk in newness of life, according to Romans 6, 4. When you think back on your baptism, you can be reminded once again that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so too you will experience resurrection. 
We need reassurance all the time. We are just like Noah and his family. And we're just like Peter's audience. We need to be sustained by God's grace. Baptism serves that purpose in reminding us that no matter what we do, no matter how many times we've blown it, no matter how bad our commitment is, we are still in union with Christ. And that's what we need. And isn't that what Noah and his family needed? And isn't that what Peter's audience needed? Has Peter's audience suffered for their faith? As we suffer for our faith, what we need are continual reminders that we belong to Jesus now. And that's why Peter points his readers to Jesus in verse 22. Because their faith is weak. They're exhausted. They're scared. They need encouragement. Just like Noah. Just like us. And so Peter says to these churches, let me tell you once again about the God that you serve, the God that you belong to. Yes, I know you're suffering. I know it's hard. I know you're tired. I know about Nero. I know he's burning Christians alive to light up his garden at night. I know about that sadistic man. I know the government is making it difficult for Christians and for churches. Don't freak out. Stop reading all those forwarded emails that say some politician is the Antichrist. Stop fretting over the state of your country. Look to Jesus. And now let me tell you about him once again. And then Peter drops a gospel bomb on his readers in verse 22 as he describes Jesus this way. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is our God, Grace. This is the God that you belong to. Jesus sits at the right hand of God and every single person, every single spiritual being, angel or demon, every authority, the president of the United States, the governor of our state, Nero, your boss, all powers have been subjected to him and you belong to him, Christian, and you are in union with him. That's good news that needs to be proclaimed today. That's what Peter's audience desperately needed to hear. It's what we desperately need to hear. And it's what Noah and his family desperately needed to hear. So yes, we are in the same boat as Noah. It's us against the world. It's us, the church, against the world that hates our guts because we belong to Jesus. And by appealing to Noah in this passage, Peter was saying, you're in the same boat as Noah, little churches. Things are dark. Believers are few. We're the minority. But Jesus reigns. And guess what, Grace? We too are in the same boat as Noah, pun intended. We're in the same boat as Noah and Peter's audience. Sadly, Too many Christians get hung up on what it means that Jesus preached to spirits in prison and they forget how gospel dense this passage is. They forget to look to Jesus, the whole point of the passage. The point of the passage is not to get hung up on all the questions. What does it mean to preach to spirits in prison? What does it mean that baptism saves you? That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is Jesus. Why spend all of your energies trying to solve this puzzle when you can gaze upon the one who is on the throne? 
So here's the bottom line, Grace. When you are overwhelmed with life, when you are suffering for your faith in your family and in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods, when people hate you because you're a Christian, when they hate you because you belong to Jesus, when you feel like the world is against you because you are a Christian, remember Jesus. When all hell breaks loose and you feel like you cannot go on, remember Jesus. When you suffer in this world because of your faith, remember Jesus. When the guilt of your sin is weighing you down, when you feel the condemnation of the law, remember Jesus. When you wash your face, remember Jesus. And when you get hung up on some complex theological truth, Remember Jesus. When you study the Bible and you try to understand deep doctrinal truths, and you should be doing that, you should be digging into this book and trying to understand God, just don't forget in all of your studies who all of those passages and verses are pointing to. They're pointing to Jesus. And don't forget that God keeps his promises and his people. So do you find joy today, nourishment today, hope today, encouragement in the truth that God is faithful? Does it stir your heart that God is faithful to his promises, that he keeps and preserves his people? Or is that just old hat? Are you here this morning saying, I've heard that a million times. Trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Trust the promises. Heard it a million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that old hat to you today? Does it stir your heart that God is faithful to all of his promises? If not, if I haven't convinced you in this sermon and I haven't convinced you with my correct interpretation of the passage, then let Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs help you this morning. He says this, Thus you see how a godly heart finds contentment in the covenant. Many of you speak of the covenant of God and of the covenant of grace, But have you found it as effectual as this to your souls? Have you sucked this sweetness from the covenant and contentment to your hearts in your sad conditions? It is a special sign of true grace in any soul that when any affliction befalls him, in a kind of natural way, he repairs immediately to the covenant. Just as a child, as soon as ever it is in danger, need not be told to go to his father or mother, for nature tells him so. So it is with a gracious heart. As soon as it is in any trouble or affliction, there is a new nature which carries him to the covenant immediately where he finds ease and rest. If you find that your hearts work in this way, immediately running to the covenant, it is an excellent sign of true grace. What's going on in your heart and world today? You stressed out, you need a promise. Find a promise in God's word. Suck the sweetness out of it until it brings you ease and peace and rest. Like a child, when a child is scared, when my kids are scared, no one has to tell them, run to your daddy. They just do that. That's what Jeremiah Burroughs is saying. When you're stressed out, when you're exhausted, and you're weary, you don't know what's going on, the natural response is the believers, I have to run to my father. This makes sense. I have to go to him. No one has to tell you that. 
Find a promise in God's word today. Whatever it is. Maybe the weight of your sin is bogging you down. What you did last night is bogging you down. Find a promise. Romans 8, 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In union with Christ. Grab that promise. Suck the sweetness out of it until it brings ease and peace and rest to your heart. Maybe you're stressed out about what's happening in your life. Go to Romans 8, 28. That God is working all things together for your good. And Hang on to that promise and squeeze and suck the sweetness out of it until it brings ease and peace and rest to your heart. Maybe it's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe that's the promise you need to suck on today until it brings ease and peace and rest. Maybe it's Psalm 125. It says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Maybe you just need to be told over and over again that God is surrounding you. Suck the sweetness out of whatever promise you need in his word because they're true until they bring ease and peace and rest. May you take your weak, doubting, stressed out, and suffering heart to the God who keeps covenant. May you suck the sweetness from all the covenant promises that are yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we admit that our faith is weak this morning, but we thank you that you've given us signs that point to the reality of our being in union with Christ. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. We have promises in your word, Father. May the people here today My brothers and sisters, may they find promises in your word that comfort their hearts and strengthen them. May they leave here today knowing that even though we're all in the same boat as Noah, Peter's audience, us, Noah and his family, you are faithfully preserving us, protecting us, strengthening us, and sustaining us. And then may you get great glory as that becomes evident in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.